In the fog of war, we often miss how seemingly prosaic factors like the economy may be influencing the dynamics of conflicts like Gaza. It often takes a curious researcher to look at fresh at things, to trace different explanations. Let me introduce you to one right now. Professor Ari Krumpf is an Israeli economist. He's become fascinated by how Israel's whole approach to the funding of peace and war fundamentally changed about 20 years ago under Bibi Netanyahu as finance minister even before he became leader. Netanyahu's obsession was self-reliance, which ultimately helped influence the country's view of its security and its need for alliances, altering attitudes that had underpinned Israel's existence since 1948. Arya Krumpf considers this was transformative, and I'll let him explain why. Now, you'll certainly hear the typically intense Middle East emotions in this interview that I recorded late yesterday. Professor Krumpf works at the Academic College of Tel Aviv, Yafo, and at Harvard. He's the author of The Israeli Path to Neoliberalism, The State, Continuity and Change. Thank you for inviting me, Geraldine. Happy to be with you. Can I say at the outset to listeners, I'm not suggesting that economic matters trump the human suffering, but look, I really think your analysis adds to our understanding. What I'd like you to outline is how the decisions about the shape and makeup of Israel's economy has influenced the course of events that lead to today. Now, can you do that for us, please? I think the starting point has to be the year 2000. The year 2000 is the year when the second intifada broke out and the peace process between Israel and the Palestinian Authority basically terminated. And the second intifada was this kind of crisis. It was an economic crisis and it wasn't a political crisis. And I would even say that it was a kind of epistemic crisis in the sense that the Israeli leadership had to rethink how it is going to go on. And what do I mean by that? Up until the year 2000, Israeli leadership was guided by what I call the peace economy approach, which meant that if Israel wants to have prosperity, it has to have a peace process. And it was assumed that the peace process is in the interest of Israel, even an essential interest. And another element within this peace uh, economy paradigm was the very close relationship between Israel and the United States. Because without the United States, Mm. without the support, the financial support, the economic support, and even the military support, the peace process wouldn't go on. And w- what happened is that in the year 2000, this paradigm broke out. You know, when Ehud Barak came back from Camp David and declared that there is no partner for a peace process, for the left, it was the end of an era. It was the collapse of a paradigm. What are we going to do if we don't have mm. a, a partner? And the story went that uh, Ehud Barak offered them everything any prime minister could have offered. I mean, this story is contested, but it's not the point now. I mean, the, and then at that point, 
uh, after the second intifada and the right wing parties came to power and then they came with a new type of paradigm which you can call it Netanyahu's paradigm and I think we leave this paradigm until the beginning of 2023. For Netanyahu, the point is that he tried to get to economic prosperity without a peace process. And in order to do that, he had to do several things. First, he externalized the crisis. Like he said, I'm going to create a stable economy and a globalized economy and an exporting economy without terminating the conflict, without reaching a peace agreement with, with the Palestinians. And I think he was quite successful in doing that. He built the barrier, the separation barrier between the occupied territories and yeah. Israel. And he kind of created a kind, you know, Israel of Tel Aviv with the high-tech industry, etc., and the Israel of Jerusalem, which is the more nationalist, and the Israel which promotes the settling in the occupied territories, etc. What I hear as an yeah. Australian, I hear that in effect, it was a sort of a neoliberal, you, you say it yourself, like revolution, and it reduced their dependence on the US because it was actually extraordinarily, yeah. quotes, successful. Mm-hmm. It massively built up yeah. their foreign reserves because they got huge amounts of investment mm-hmm. in Israel. The whole region started to think differently about Israel because it had all of these sort of um, amazing inventions and uh, developments in contributing to changing the technology of the world. So this fundamentally altered Israel's view about peace and war. Did the Palestinians have any role in this? Where were they in this? One more point about the strategy that you mentioned all the right thing. And in addition to that, it meant that Israel could not maintain a long war. So Netanyahu wanted to have like a very short-term operation, either in Lebanon, in Gaza, or in the occupied territories. Now, in the Palestinian, they left out of it. I mean, this is obvious. For Netanyahu, for the right-wing parties, they didn't want to reach a peace agreement. They don't want two-state solution. And therefore, they did everything in order to bypass the Palestinian problem. He wanted to have the Abraham Accord with the Gulf countries and to promote, to strengthen Israel economy. And to and this is the, the, a, a critical point. He wanted to weaken the Palestinian Authority. Yes. And this was the conception in, in Gaza. Part of this conception was to strengthen the Hamas. Yes. Because the Hamas uh, is not right. a recognized organization. Okay. So in a way, for for the right wing parties, the purpose was to have a manageable conflict. And inside Israel, the abandonment of the peace yeah. economy in, in favour of this new neoliberal model also yeah. so, saw a lot yeah. of rising inequality among Israelis, didn't it? That's not generally exactly. reported in, in Australia, you know. Exactly. I mean, this is crucial. And this is why I call it hawkish neoliberalism or national security neoliberalism, because the implication of this strategy, there was a kind of trade-off between Israel's external power and Israel's social resilience and social solidarity. 
And in a way, there was the right-wing parties sacrificed the welfare of uh, Israeli people in order to make Israel a powerful country from a military perspective and from a geopolitical perspective. You know, the question is that I don't have the answer to is to what extent the voters of the right-wing parties were aware of this equation that I make and that they supported it. This is a question that we don't know exactly, but I I think there is the fact that there was a kind of trade-off here. You have to understand that it could be the case that at least part of the supporters of the right-wing parties supported this view. For, you know, in Israel, there is a saying, you know, this is not Europe. We are not European. So, okay, we want to have social democracy like in Sweden, like in Denmark, but we we are not Europe, so we have to pay some kind of cost. We have to bury the cost of the fact that we want our country to be in the Middle East. In a way, this is the situation, you know, you're in the Middle East, you have to, you are Zionist, you are nationally patriot. There is a price in Israel, there is a price for that. Right. What is intriguing about this is that this was all happening with this gradual realisation that the relationship with the region around was shifting and that in a way the Mm -hmm. Palestinians were faced with the classic, you know, can't live with them, can't live without them because a lot of them were actually being given work in Israel as well. What Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued by is if this reduces Israel's dependence on the US, which it does quite considerably. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the Bank of Israel has the greatest foreign reserves in the world, you tell me. Yeah. Does yeah. this yeah. mean yeah. That, that the US has much less influence these days in trying to change the okay. course of okay. events right now? Uh, okay. Okay. I mean, now, you know, so far we talked about the past. Now let's talk about the, the present. And when I'm saying the present, I'm saying let's talk about 2023, because I think it's important to understand the war in Gaza in the context of the kind of coup or judicial reform, or however you call it, that Israel experienced in the last year. Something changed during this year. So let me take a few steps backwards to talk about the judicial reform, okay? Because Netanyahu doctrine was a huge success from his perspective, from the from the perspective of the political right in Israel, really. And the success of this doctrine was based on internal balance between the liberal forces, the cosmopolitan forces, you know, the, the Tel Aviv forces, the high-tech forces, and the nationalists, the religious forces. Yep. And there was a balance. They, he maintained to me, uh, the balance for many years until January 2, 2023, when there was this new government and Netanyahu faced on the one hand the threat of the tribe. He, the tribe took most of his attention and he had to take care of his uh, survival. And at the same time, he has in, in the government a very powerful extreme I call it the messianic right, you know, that they are working according to different, they are not pragmatic like Netanyahu. They don't see the implication on Israel geopolitical power and they pull to one direction. And in that sense, they broke down his paradigm. 
Yeah, I sort of think we know this. What I think is really okay. interesting about your thesis is where it takes us now. Because, for instance, we've got yeah, this extraordinary okay. yeah. technocratic edifice in in um, in Israel. Yeah. A, a lot of them are military reservists. Like it's what is emerging is that a yeah. lot of the I think it's something like ten percent of that technical workforce is yeah. actually on the front lines now. And yeah. In, yeah, yeah, there's even yeah, stories yeah. about pe- places in Australia, people in Australia trying to fill that gap. So I wonder where where this takes us. Like I noticed that a letter of 300 prominent economists and contributors has just emerged in Israel saying, this is no way to run our economy. Of course, there's all sorts of blood being spilled as well. But I just wonder where this goes, this new economy that you've described. Till I want to to finish one point about this coup. The coup, one of its side effects was the rising of the liberal democratic camp yes. in Israel. It's, they were dormant for many years. And then, you know, the high-tech people and the military establishment, they basically recreated the political system. They redefined what it means to be a left-wing party. They made the left-wing a kind of claiming back their nationalist loyalty. Yeah, And this was a revolution that we are still in it. If you ask me, what is where does it go from here? This is one of the elements that we have to take into consideration. Now, let me say one sentence about the United States. So Netanyahu's doctrine was all about being independent from the United States in the sense that preventing the U.S. from exerting pressure on Israel. I think this era is over. You know, the most significant event in the last month, except for the terror in the 7th of October, was the decision of the United States to send two aircraft carriers Mm -hmm. to the Middle East in order to support Israel. This means that for the United States, Israel is a kind of NATO member. Israel was treated as a NATO member. And this is huge. Now, it has two implications. One, you know, that we have a very good, powerful friends out there that support us. But there is another hidden message in this decision to the government and to the right-wing uh, camp. And this, and the, and the message is, is that Israel is part of NATO. Israel is part okay. of the liberal world. And the United States is not going to let Israel, you know, it's like saying, you know, okay, kid, you play enough. Now it's time to be serious and it's time to realize that without the United States, you cannot survive in the Middle East. So it's a very symbiotic relationship that you're describing here. I do see what you're saying, but I wonder where that that leaves us now. Final question is, so it's a surplus country That's as a result of this amazing transformative change. Where does it leave it right now as it's facing these huge questions and we're all watching them? To be honest, you know, as a political scientist, sometimes it is more difficult to predict the short term than the medium term. (laughs) Because in the short term, there are so many events. I mean, any, you know, any bomb can, any decisions of one person can change so much. So I don't know where the war is going. But I do think that I can say something about the meter, about, you know, two or three years from now. And obviously there is the good scenario and this is the bad scenario. The bad scenario is awful. 
You know, Israel can turn into like the struggling failed states if, you know, the, in, the, in the bad scenario, in the worst scenario, this government, the extreme, the messianic right, is making this political coup in Israel. The high-tech leaves the country. We turn into like a kind of a third world country with huge level of inequality. We lose all the advantage we got during the last 20 years in mm. terms of GDP per capita, standard of living, etc., etc. This is the bad scenario. The good scenario is that the war is completed that way or another. We are scaling back, realizing that we are dependent on the West. We are dependent on the United States. The voters of Israel realizing that. And we, we, we fixed this 2003 failure, political failure. Right. And we rebuilding uh, Israel on the basis of this coalition of the high-tech people, the military, Israel would still be, you know, a kind of securitized country with yeah. a, a, the military takes a, a very dominant role in shaping what being Israeli means. And I, I mean, in this good scenario, the liberal democratic camp, this is like, you know, the center left is gaining much more power because in a way, you know, it and, was and, the and will uh, they, and, vision of the right. Yes, sorry. And well, a two-state solution, is that does that come as well with this good scenario? This, this is, I would be happy if this would be the scenario. I would be happy, but I cannot, knowing the population in Israel, I cannot say that this would be, you know, like simple two-state solution, but I think, and I hope this is not a wishful thinking, that a kind of arrangement in this direction, because you have to, I, I mean, you have to keep in mind, I mean, because people abroad, I think they don't aware of it enough, that the problem now, when the right wing is in power, is not only the formal occupation, it's the way you manage the occupation, okay? This is, a, you know, I, 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 and now I'm talking as an observer, not as someone who is taking uh, decisions. You know, if I'm sitting and if I, I would be happy to have a two-state solution, but I am not sure that the Israeli people, you know, the center is there. But I think that there is a majority in Israel in order at least to make the, the 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 life of Palestinians more manageable, okay. more normal. Because currently, you know, the government is uh, even in 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 uh, uh, the West Bank, and irrespective of the of the war in Gaza. Uh, make the life of the Palestinians miserable. Thank you very, very yeah. much indeed for joining us. I really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure, Geraldine. Thank you. That was Ari Krumpf, Associate Professor of Political Economy and International Studies at the Academic College of Tel Aviv, Yafo, and he's the author of The Israeli Path to Neoliberalism. It's a Routledge publication. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.